everyone. Welcome to the History in Today podcast. I'm Sam Zellin with Katie Spinato, and our guest this week is Grace McFadden. So welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me this week. We're so happy to have you. I'm so excited to be here. So this week we have a little bit of a special episode because um, unfortunately and very tragically, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died uh, two days ago now, I think. It's been two days. And, you know, we were going to have different topics, but we thought it was important to dedicate this episode to her and kind of talk about the influence, both past and present and future, that she has had on this country and the world. So, uh, yeah, do, do you guys have any you know, opening statements you want to say about her or just in general things? I definitely feel like this is a point where we can keep like feel history changing. I always think that there are those certain like pinpoint moments in your life where you feel the transition. And I think that in our country's history, for example, this is one of those moments. The fact that we're living through a year that is so, so heavy in everything that has happened. Um, this is just like the culmination of the political tension that has happened and it's it's unfortunate that we can't just celebrate her life, but that we also have to worry for the future of our country at the same time. That's that's all I got so far. Yeah, I think, you know, reflecting on her life and everything that she's done, it kind of puts into perspective both the importance of the Supreme Court um, and just the importance of her role there and how much that's just going to influence everything going forwards now that she's not here. Um, because sometimes, you know, we like to think that we can avoid politics, but this is really a case where even the, though the C Supreme Court seems so distant from daily life, it's something that really does affect us in the day to day. I agree with both of those. I think it's, you know, it's just really like scary how, you know, one person just you know, all of this that just came crashing down in the last two days and all of, you know, the responses to it, it's all just been resting on one person's shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of comments like online saying like, why is the system like this? <laughs> and it's just, it's sad because, you know, instead of an 87 year old woman getting to retire at, you know, reasonable age and live a comfortable life, she had to kind of fight till the end and then you know, some would argue didn't even really make it as far as she had to, but hopefully, hopefully she did. <laughs> uh, hopefully we'll see that. But uh, as Katie said, um, you know, it's it's kind of, we can't just celebrate her life. We also have to talk about the implications of what happened. So this, this episode, we're going to try to do both. The beginning, we're going to celebrate all the things that she did in her life and talk about what, you know, the life that she lived and all the accomplishments she had. And then after that, we're going to segue into, okay, you know, sadly, this is the, the world we live in now where she has passed on. And what does that mean? You know, we're going to talk about what does that mean for the incoming couple of months for the implications that could last another 30 years after that. And yeah, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. So uh, do any of you guys want to start off talking about the biography or should I do it? I mean, I have something pulled up here. Okay. All right. So, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as we know, was born as Joan Ruth Bader in New York City in 
Brooklyn, which is where she grew up. Um, and she attended James Madison High School, which was later had a law program dedicated to her in her honor. Um, throughout Ruth's uh, high school career, her mother actually also struggled with cancer, which is a theme that comes up later in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's own life, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, after high school, she attended Cornell, um, which is where she started her college career. Yeah, I think, I, you know, that's like a good intro where I think, you know, she had, didn't have this very high and mighty childhood. She was born in Brooklyn, which, at the, you know, at the time was not like a, you know, a hip neighborhood. And she was not wealthy. She ended up going to the high school and ended up getting into Cornell, which is, you know, obviously still is a very prestigious school. Uh, and at the time, you know, she was, Cornell, Cornell was co-ed, but at the time when I was looking this up and it kind of shocked me, she went on to Harvard and then Columbia, where uh, the Columbia undergrad program that she would, that she would teach at would not become co-ed until the 80s, which was like, it became co-ed in 1983, and she was teaching there in the 70s. So I think that's just like. I think that's just a testament to how strong her character was, because thinking of thinking of that time um, that she grew up in, women were not accepted in, in the academic field whatsoever. So the fact that she went to Columbia, Harvard, these very prestigious prestigious schools where where people didn't want women. Um, mm -hmm. at the time and she and she managed managed to teach for one of those one of those very prestigious um, institutions it's you have to have a lot of strength and resilience to get through that I think because you're in a place where you constantly feel not wanted because you aren't wanted um, and I definitely think that that also shaped the course of her life and perhaps is the reason she was so willing to dissent on a lot of on a lot of opinions because she was able to become headstrong by being placed in those tough environments. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, I'm going to have to cut that out. No um, worries. But I think the uh, oh, did you want to go first or? Uh... Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I was just looking back on it and you know, she graduated from Cornell in 1954. When she was at Cornell, she met Martin Ginsburg when she was 17, and then she went on to marry him. And then she gave birth to her first daughter in 1955, the year after she graduated. And then she went to um, Harvard in 1956. And, you know, it's tough to be, it was tough to be a woman at that time, but it was especially tough to be a mother at that time. Because one of the things that I'm learning now is that um, she worked for the Social Security Administration and like, when she was pregnant, she was demoted. So, you know, even in something so small as that, like the odds were kind of stacked against her as she started to kind of like move forward in her career through college. And it just, I think you guys are right. It really speaks to her character, how much she was able to overcome with that. Yeah, and even, you know, that's, that's 
seems like a hard enough challenge for her to, you know, be struggling and demoted as a mother, you know, trying to finish grad school. Also, her husband was in the was in the military. Her husband was drafted in the fifties. So now she's not only a mother in grad school, she's a single mother in grad school. And he would then come back and be um, diagnosed with cancer. Which so now she's basically caring for her husband who is sick with cancer and her child while at arguably well no not even arguably the the two most prestigious law I mean I think you could pretty much no one's gonna dispute the fact that Harvard and Columbia at the time at least and still are the two most prestigious law schools in the country. <laughs> and she not only finished and and graduated with her law degree, she was first in her class at Columbia, uh, was the first woman to ever be in the Harvard Law Review. And again, also had all those challenges to kind of weigh down on her even more, which is just so impressive. Yeah, I really like to just imagine what her days were like during that time period. Like, she must have been getting like three or four hours of sleep. It's just not something that like, I could ever imagine doing it's so incredible that she was able to you know balance having a child taking care of her husband going to law school which is a place where everyone was pretty much i would imagine openly hostile to her as a woman and you know mm -hmm. one of i think that she was one of nine women in her class of around 500 so being there and then having to go home and basically take care of everything else that's just insane i can't imagine what like her day-to-day -day life looked like yeah. yeah i definitely think that this is a case where integrity comes into play so you have this he this huge powerful woman who enters the supreme court um in 1993 um because she was appointed by president bill clinton um, so you have this woman who has done all of these amazing things that that, that we, is, as a product of her time, it's it's very interesting that she filled all of those hats. She she really did it all and was the definition of someone who could do it all. And so I think that 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 she was living up to what she had done, and by doing so, she was fighting for women's rights because she knew, like I, if I could do this all other women can do this too, and they should have the opportunity to do this as well. So I think that she used her experiences to shape what she wanted to fight for, for other people. And it's a testament to, to knowing that she, she started doing all of these things, but she needed and wanted to expand it because she knew the importance of it. Things like her husband having cancer are, are things that you cannot predict. And, and women do need to step up and support if you know, their, their partner cannot handle something. And the, and the same thing goes the other way. You know? Relationships are mutually beneficial. And I think that, that just, she was just such an influence on the, on the, on the sphere of women, the sphere of influence. And she, she diverged from that. And so that kind of catapulted her into arguing and being a pioneer for gender rights. I think that uh, another really, you know, speaking of the things that she was doing and the pioneering, pioneering that she was doing, 
you know, we've talked we've talked about her career in academia, and then we talked about the fact that she was inevitably put on the court, the appeals court in DC, and then eventually the Supreme Court. But before that, in the 70s, while she was teaching in that aforementioned Columbia Law School position where she became the first tenured female professor there, uh, she was also the director of the Women's which is a wing of the ACLU, which is obviously the American Civil Liberties Union, still very prominent today. Uh, she was the director of that, and she saw she argued six cases in front of the Supreme Court. So she was she was no you know no newbie to the Supreme Court when she got there in '93. She argued six cases in front of the Supreme Court, all for equality rights, and won five of them, which is like, that's really impressive. so. It's another facet of her career. Yeah, that's just her record there is pretty incredible. Um, yeah, I think what you mentioned about her working at Columbia is also interesting um, because, you know, she's kind of trying to break into these two wor worlds at that point in her career. She's both trying to break into like the law and litigation world, but also having to deal with the stressors of being in academia, which I'm sure held their own um, independent uh, problems. Definitely a impressive balancing act. Mm -hmm. So should we get into her uh, career as a judge or uh, that's kind of the build up to this? Yeah. But, uh, so in 1993, she's appointed to the court, uh, the Supreme Court by Bill Clinton. Uh, she supported, she was originally appeal, uh, the appeals court uh, judge in DC, appointed by Jimmy Carter uh, at the very end of his campaign, the very, uh, very end of his presidency. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. No problem, no problem. But uh, yeah, in 1993, she's this, you know, she's one of the nine Supreme Court justices in the highest court of the US. And Three years later, so pretty soon into her tenure as Supreme Court Justice, she has to deal with um, U.S. versus Virginia, which was a case where the Virginia Military Institute said that the, basically wanted to refuse women from joining their program. Uh, Virginia Military Institute was funded by the state; it was a state organization. So she was sued. The, the the U.S. was suing the state of Virginia, and she delivered the she delivered the decision, which obviously the Supreme Court said, you guys can't do that. You know, women should be, you know, allowed to apply and be admitted to this thing. And you can't just say, you know, you're not admitted because you're a woman. Uh, and that was like her first big landmark decision. Yeah, I think that really sets the tone for her entire Supreme Court career in a sense. Um, having to do U.S. versus Virginia, um, because of course, a lot of the overtone, a lot of the, a lot of the decisions she made had to do with gender, and I think that was really based on the experiences, her life experiences that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I think that, that her experience on the court and her being placed on the court really balanced out the experience and the scope of opinions that are on the Supreme Court, which is very important because I feel, I feel as though if you don't have a variety of opinion on the Supreme Court and you do tend to lean one way or another, um, and that 
there is like not a lot of dissent in those decisions, it it almost makes the process of completing um, or, you know, getting cases through, um, it makes it less of a debate, I think. And I, and there's something to be said that the Supreme Court ideally should reflect the diversity that is in America. Um, and I think that, that she, her role on the Supreme Court is one of those first steps of reflecting the people who live in America because she was so willing to put herself out there in, you know, in times where, you know, women were not respected as completely equal, but that didn't, that didn't dissuade her because she knew that her job was important. She knew that the weight of being on the Supreme court. And so I think that that guided her, her every move. And I think that it pushed her and motivated her to do the most for women because that's who she's there to advocate for. So I definitely think that that her voice on the Supreme Court is something that that changed America drastically. Yeah, and I think her uh, her appointments time in American history is also very like very important because if you look back to two years before her appointment, you have Clarence Thomas who was put on the court amid the amidst the all the whole Anita Hill thing where he had been uh, accused of sexual misconduct and of course a Joe Biden led <laughs> committee uh confirmed him despite all of this in a very in a very Brett Kavanaugh-esque uh committee hearing where you know we, we didn't really see much progress in the last 20 years from that. But uh, just two years later, you see a you know a, a, this, the second female justice ever put on the court. And the first one was Sandra Day O'Connor, who while she was a woman, was also a conservative woman. So yes, she was, you know, obviously a huge milestone, but in the same way Clarence Thomas is black, but also is not exactly fighting for a lot of the, the current, you know, Black Lives Matter and that, that, those kinds of causes. Uh, I think it, it's very important to have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has, you know, spent uh, up until this point, spend her, spent her life fighting for women's equality, is the next one in. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I do think, yeah, what you said about the context is really important. Um, and like, we'll talk about this more later, but the context of who she's also on the court with becomes increasingly more important throughout her career as she becomes kind of a linchpin for women's rights in a sense. Um, she's kind of holding, you know, <clears throat> abortion rights steady for women. Um, throughout like the aughts and the 2010s going forward so yeah moving I, into the moving into that i think uh before we get to the 2010s and before we get to that it's just just a quick little snippet of rbg history we have um her famous quote of just i dissent came from bush v gore which 
Bush v. Gore is just such a weird decision. And the fact that I think it's just another example of why the Supreme Court has, in my opinion, too much responsibility these days. And I think a lot of people agree with that. But the fact that in in our life, basically in our life, the year before, the president that we were all born with, uh, he was chosen by the Supreme Court, <laughs> which it, it's not how it should be. That was never how it was designed to be. And uh Ruth Bader Ginsburg obviously didn't agree with the decision made by her colleagues and her famous line, I dissent, which did not include the word respectfully, which was the, you know, the custom and the respectful and polite way to say it, was, I think, very, very telling of the kind of person that she was. She wasn't just going to kind of, you know, sit back and say, you know, that's your opinion. I'm going to just, you know, that's my, I have your opinion. You have your opinion. I have my opinion. And, you know, oh, I guess you guys want out. She was just going to let the people know that she didn't agree with it. And just because they won, she wasn't going to agree with it now. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's really telling of her character um, and how steadfast, in a sense, um, she was in some of her beliefs. Because sometimes, you know, I guess the big question with the Supreme Court is whether you're there to uphold collective morals or whether you're there to uphold what we put out in the Constitution. Um, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it doesn't seem like she had many of those, you know, kind of internal conflicts. She seemed very, she's very consistent in her decisions, and that's something to be respected, I think that she kind of always stuck to her morals. I think that it goes beyond, I think that she goes beyond just being a judge on the Supreme Court. I think that, that she took being an advocate and, and fighting for people who are underrepresented. She took that seriously. And not, not to say that, that other members um, on the Supreme Court do not take um, advocating for the underdog seriously. But I think that she not only knew the importance of advocating for people and showing activism for people, but she she followed through on doing so because she knows how important it is to maintain American democracy. And part of maintaining American democracy are these decisions that are being made, like saying, I don't think that it's right that the Supreme Court decides the president for, you know, 2000 or, you know, so it's, she filled more than that role, I think. She was so much more than a Supreme Court justice, but she brought so much to the table that really transformed the court. And I believe in a way for the better. And I hope that the court continues to transition because there, there are some parts of the court that are not ideal for America. I think Sam and I were talking the other day about how a lot of major cases are passed through the Supreme Court, but none of them make it into the Constitution. And not to like diverge, but I, I hope that. We can totally, we can totally go off on this at this point if you want. 
Yeah, like I just I just hope that one day we get more ju- justices like her because mm-hmm. she she went beyond the call of duty. You know, she went above and beyond what was required. And that's why all Americans are scared right now for our democracy because she really was the safeguard for it. She was the safeguard for women feeling equal. Um and so that's why I think it's it's difficult for us all to to grasp what's going to happen moving forward and accept that we lost a giant. She was a giant and there's going to be a huge hole in the Supreme Court for years to come, I believe. So, yeah, I think you touched on something really interesting, Katie, which is kind of like this contrast between, you know, her as in her role in her political role in a sense and her as an activist it kind of reminds me of um the connecticut senator chris murphy this is a bit of a tangent i suppose but um chris murphy sometimes talks he's a big proponent for um gun safety legislation and he talks about his work with gun safety legislation um in terms of activism and he calls himself an activist there and he doesn't call himself a politician there and he chooses to make that distinction, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I think, you know, there's kind of that same distinction when it comes to like women's rights for uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like this was an issue that she was really passionate about. Um, and like you said, her not being on the court anymore, it really brings up a lot of questions about where we'll go next. Um, I also think what you guys were saying about, you know, having the Supreme Court have a little bit too much power in this country is definitely true um when you realize that like there's nine people who can really decide the fate of literally millions um you know maybe that's a little too much power yeah i think it's just sad that you know we've seen and as is definitely part of her biography you know we've seen cases like obergefell versus hodges which was the the law that made the, not the law, the decision that made gay marriage uh, completely universal in all 50 states. And Roe v. Wade was before her time, obviously, in the court, but she was around for when it was passed. And, you know, th- those are two decisions that should be legislation and should be amendments in the Constitution. And there's there's really no argument. I mean, there's argument, of course, because there's always argument, but there shouldn't be any argument about either of those being the law of the land. But of course, as you know, as we've been saying, the Supreme Court has too much power. And it's the responsibility of, you know, we the responsibility of this idea that we need a new generation to uphold Roe v. Wade and uphold the gay marriage decisions and uphold the all the other ones, like for for example, Virginia versus the US was a case that, you know, could be overturned. And the fact that we're, you know, kind of throwing the same solution at the problem, which clearly isn't, you know, clearly isn't a permanent fix, it's just kind of frustrating where it's like, okay, you know, how can we solve this problem of relying on justices so much? Oh, right, more justices. That makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, I think that. I feel as though people need to hold the Supreme Court accountable for the amount of power that they have. And I think that every, personally, I think that every justice 
should have something that they are passionate about that drives both activism and you know politics like we've made this distinction that is so important if we are going to have nine people decide the fate of millions of americans they cannot be wishy-washy and not have any anything that drives what they do they each it doesn't have to be the same passion it can be different passions it would be better if it was different passions because you have different judges arguing for different things and it, it encompasses a wide scope of areas to improve on in our country and i think not only not only does the supreme supreme court need that i think that americans need to understand how the supreme court and the judicial branch fits in with the other branches i think a part of the reason why the issues exist is because people do not know how the branch fits in and i think if if we truly were aware of how it fits in and we are aware of those problems that exist we are able to hold accountable and we are able to represent in this case senators who make those appointments to or the nominations um they approve the nominations for the justices that we can make more informed decisions because it's all interconnected you know what i'm saying so if you don't know how the judicial branch fits in how is the country going to work how are we as voters going to vote for people who who bring about the change that we need to see um, which i think is definitely a conversation worth having and i think that you know it's it's all about you know the judicial branch fitting in and like you know finding a better place for it but also i think the reason that we need to find a better place for the judicial branch which i think in theory, as, as a lot of things in this country are, where in theory it works, you know, in theory the Electoral College makes a lot of sense, but of course not in reality. But I think, you know, in theory the judicial branch after, after Marbury versus Madison, which is after when, you know, judicial review became a thing, which is kind of the whole point of why the Supreme Court has so much power, in theory, that makes sense. In theory, that is the check, that's the ultimate check of checks and balances. But what brings it down, in my opinion, is the fact that Congress has currently has a an inability to do any of its job. And if you're not checking anything, because Congress should be having more power than it does, and should be handing down more decisions and actually passing more laws, if you have nothing to check, now you're just going to overstep your boundaries and start becoming the legislature, which is what I think the Supreme Court has become. Where now it's almost as if, you know, they're nominating like a super senator <laughs> as opposed yeah. to like, yeah. I think the ideal situation would be after it goes to the Supreme Court to help Congress push through those amendments so that they're not just cases like we were saying earlier. Like once a decision is made in the Supreme Court, it should not end there. It needs to go back to the other branches to make sure that it can go in the constitution so that it can actually be a law. Like, I, I don't think that like every single decision, we need to do that with every single decision, but the ones that are pivotal, the ones that are important to human rights, the ones that, that encompass what human rights are, what America should be, but, but admittedly is not right now um th those decisions need to be our law they need to be in the constitution but it's not happening because the decision goes to the supreme court and then it doesn't go anywhere else um and it should it should go back to congress and 
especially because the people we elect largely sit in Congress. So. Yeah, I think your term of super senator was really good, Sam. Um, and I think you guys are both touching on a really important point that like, you know, in theory, like we have some influence over how these judges are picked. Um, I mean, they make very important decisions. And they have a ton of power. But in practice, you know, it's very, we don't have a ton of direct influence over who gets to sit on the court. Um, and then they end up making like very large decisions, as you mentioned, Katie, often having to do with human rights, and then they just don't go back in the Constitution. It's just overall a very strange system. Um, I think we can agree on that. Yeah, I think it, it definitely it definitely is a very strange system. I think it's like, it, it again, it feels like it's supposed to make sense because like it's, you know, just it's our system that we've been indoctrinated with. But then you, you go back and think and you're like, you know, we learn, you know, checks and balances. We learn that, you know, they all check each other and that causes the balance. And then you, you really think like, what is checking the court? <laughs> Right. The, the Senate is the is the Senate confirmation hearing really like what is checking the court? <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll see soon with the upcoming uh, Supreme Court nomination. Yeah, I think that that going back to what you said, Grace, about how we really do not have much influence on who who sits in the Supreme Court. I think that, that nothing rings more true to that in this current time that we're in, because I we, we always get somewhat political on here, so it's okay. But it's a political if, podcast. Yes, <laughs> arguably a political podcast. But if if a justice to replace or a justice to fill the seat that RBG filled, if this happens before the election of another president, it it almost feels like you're basing something off of a decision that we made four years ago. We're about to renew what we think. The, the outcome could very much be different, and I hope it's different. Um, just going to outwardly say that I hope it's different. But I do not think that the America we're currently in is anything like the America that we were in five years ago. So, yes, the Senate is making these appointment or nominations and approving them and our president is looking to push them through but is that is that justice that goes on to the supreme court going to be representative of the america we're in right now or is it representative of the america that has draft drastically changed since in these past five years um is also something that i think about that i've been thinking about a lot lately like what what uh, what are we representing you know are we representing now or are we representing a different time a different you know place of mindset for opinion um yeah i think this touches on something that is kind of like an undercurrent of a lot of discussions today which is just like how democratic is america really because obviously we consider ourselves a democracy but when we think about who really gets to say and who's making the laws, I think that's become kind of like somewhat of an undertone in a lot of discussions recently, especially political discussions, obviously. 
Um, so I think what you were saying is very interesting, the fact that, like, if the choice gets made now to replace the Supreme Court justice, and then the the election goes the other way in November, um, then we have a justice that doesn't really represent what we as, you know, a corpus of people feel anymore. Um, and, you know, obviously this touches back on one of the last things that Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, which was that she doesn't want the seat to be filled until after the next election, which is something really important. I think it's also just really sad thinking about like the last the last two years of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life from a historical standpoint, just from how this is going to be interpreted, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in the future, where she, you know, obviously, you know, this is this is the decision that is being made in the next three months about, or actually it doesn't have to be the next three months. They can push a judge through after November 3rd. Uh, but this is, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy. The question of, of how she will be remembered is is very unfair to her, because I think, you know, that's, you know, her last wish is don't replace me uh, before the election, which, you know, that's that's a, you know, a great, very, that's a very good wish for right now and for, you know, the next three months. But the fact that that has to be in her thinking for the last, you know, since Donald Trump was elected, or really since Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed. So the last two years, you can say, and her her whole, you know, steadfast, I'm not going anywhere mentality and her stance on that, where, you know, that has to be not only very taxing on the human being that's, you know, going through that kind of feeling the weight, but also, do you guys think that in 30 years, when the name Ruth Bader Ginsburg is said, people will remember the, you know, the amazing woman that we talked about, you know, throughout the beginning of this podcast, where we talked about, you know, all her work in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? Or will she be remembered as the holdout that, you know, blocked the court from having, from becoming this Republican stronghold for the last three years of her life? well into her 80s, which I think I think it's just sad where it's like, you know, it, it, history remembers people, you know, for kind of usually I think, you know, they choose one thing that is what history remembers you for. And it's, I think, especially if Trump wins and if a candidate gets put in before she, uh, before she would have wished, then that's what she'll be remembered as. She'll be remembered as this, you know, strong holdout on the Supreme Court, but not for the rest of her legacy, which is. Yeah, I think that's kind of an important uh, point. Like, what will she be remembered for here? Um, I do, I hope that um, a lot of her decisions surrounding women's rights um, are the strongest part of her legacy. But I also think that just given, you know, kind of the chaos that we live in today, she was really holding um, an important position in the court right now. And it's really interesting to think about how much legislation surrounding women's rights came down to literally the, just this one person. Um, but yeah, I think you're totally right that that's definitely going to tinge her legacy in a sense that she 
was this last like holdout on the court. I guess we'll see when the next um, justice is appointed, but yeah. I also think, like, I definitely agree with you, Sam, and I think that history really, you, you don't control what people remember you for. Um, but at the same token, I think it's, I think it's the American people's responsibility to determine what her legacy is. That, that falls on us. That falls on the decision that we make on November 3rd. That falls on us realizing how important she was to the Supreme Court throughout her life. Yes, she may be remembered mostly for being this this person who held the court together and prevented that conservative majority um, in these last two years from coming about. But I think that, I mean, I can't predict what history is going to say, but I would hope that mm -hmm. by her saying that she does not want someone to be appointed before an election, that she would be remembered for that and for her determination to stick by American democracy as it should be. So I think that that is the legacy that she needs to have. And it's our responsibility as the American people living in this time to make sure that she has that legacy, if that makes sense. I agree with that. I do think, though, that on the topic of legacy, before we get into kind of the future of like what is going to happen and what we think is going to happen and what we want to happen, uh, it is important to talk about the fact that RBG was not a perfect person. Um, I think, you know, it's, you know, we all kind of every time big celebrity of any of any kind, obviously, this is a very, you know, political and legal celebrity than like, say, Kobe Bryant, for example. Uh, but every time, you know, you get the debate of, you know, should we mourn this person and just talk about the, the glory and the, just talk about the, the good and the positive, or do we have to really consider someone holistically? And I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg is undoubtedly a hero and undoubtedly a pioneer in many senses of the word, but it is also something to consider that she was a little, she was a little bit tunnel vision sometimes when it came to her positions where she, you know, pretty recently uh, with Colin Kaepernick said that she, you know, when he was kneeling at the beginning of this, you know, you know the beginning of these protests four years ago, she called him dumb and disrespectful, stupid, dumb and disrespectful or stupid and disrespectful something along the lines of that. And she later apologized, I believe, but it's still, you know, that's gonna be there too. And what do you guys think about that part of her remembrance? Yeah, I do think that that's like a super important component as well. I think it's like, while we, it is important to remember these political figures for all that they've done. Um, it's, it's also important to, you know, not hold them in our brains like uncritically um because you know the more that we lionize politicians i think the less they're held accountable in a sense you know if that makes sense um and you know there were other things like 
for me personally, she had a decision about um, a pipeline going through a Native American reservation that just like Native American land that just, I personally, I don't agree with that. There were a few other decisions where, you know, I don't necessarily agree with what she did and I don't think that it was right, but you know, I think you're right. It is not, it's in our best interest to also look at what she did that we don't agree with in addition to looking at all that she did do that was good for the world. I definitely agree with both of those points. I think that when looking at any figure in history, you need to look at not only their their accomplishments, but also their their limitations and their drawbacks. And I think that in terms of evaluating history for what it truly is, you cannot effectively do that unless you also value and take into account those those limiting aspects of someone's personality because i think a good a good thing about leadership or a good thing to keep in mind about leadership in general is that we're all human and i think that it's very easy to hold our political leaders to a on a pedestal that portrays them as perfect and and they're not they're they're not they're you know they may be trying their best but it they they do not have all the all of the answers and we cannot expect them to have all of the answers which is why it's important to have accountability in in government and, and and accountability in terms of any any leader in history or any influential person um that accountability needs to be there because that's the the only way that we can objectively see things mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about this kind of this part of, you know, kind of the, the deifying versus the humanizing of RBG, talking about sides of it, kind of, uh, I thought of it in a way where, you know, as, as you said, Katie, you talked to her, as you referred to her as a, a political leader, where it, it kind of hit me and I realized, I'm like, these aren't supposed to be, these, these justices aren't supposed to be political leaders. And as much as we, you know, in every election year and every primary, we criticize, you know, we, we will find the smallest little misstep or policy issue that a politician has made, you know, the Democratic primary, for example, where they all would go after each other for, you know, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you did this, you did this. And I think RBG, and I, I saw a bunch of posts about this yesterday, is a prime example of the kind of justice that we need, where she's referred to as a liberal justice because the other side is so conservative, not because she's so liberal. And yes, you know, one could argue that right now, the only righteous way to be is to be radical left because radical left is, you know, going to make sure, at least true radical left is going to make sure that every, and a minority group and marginalized group is being protected and given opportunity and all this kind of stuff. That's where we have to get, but the court isn't supposed to be getting us there. The court is supposed to be making the decisions and the, the people and the Congress and the legislature, the people in the legislature are the ones that are supposed to be pushing that. So I think 
we need a bunch of people that aren't going to be politicians on the court, or as, as I said earlier, the super senator. We need more people that are going to listen to a case and then decide based on the facts, uh, which, of course, you know, yes, she, you know, made some decisions that are not favorable and made some decisions that weren't good, such as the pipeline. But every, every, you know, I don't know a way to put this, I guess the, the ideal justice is going to make a few policy mistake decisions with their vote, but their vote isn't a vote on the Senate floor. Like, you know, like a, like a Senator would be held accountable for that. Their vote is, is different. It's supposed to be impartial. And it's also, a, it's a case, it's, it's a jury. It's a, it's a case that has been presented to them and they make a decision based on how it has been presented to them. And, you know, you have to think about that as opposed to, you know, congressmen are supposed to vote on their opinion while the, the votes of Supreme Court justices are supposed to vote on what's presented to them and how they see the constitution. And I think that's why someone such as like Merrick Garland, who was very much not a Democrat, and it was criticized, and Obama was criticized at the time by both sides, where the Republicans just didn't want to say any, just didn't want to let any of his candidates through. But the Democrats were annoyed that he wasn't putting a, a leftist on the court. And I think we need people like a Ruth Bader Ginsburg or a Merrick Garland who really, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a rare human being that isn't, you know, <laughs> isn't super partial to one side is obviously everybody has their bend, but those people that are the rare people that are closer to like that are truly closer to the middle. Cause I feel like a lot of people say they're centrist. I, for a long time thought of myself as a centrist. And then I started thinking about what I actually believed in and realized, you know, I probably wouldn't fall in that category, but the people that truly are centrists and believe not that they're in the middle, but that, they're willing to hear opinions presented to them should be the not only the Supreme Court justices, but should be the judges that the entire nation responds to and appoints and puts on them. But obviously, now the Supreme Court has become a battleground for liberals and liberals and conservatives to push and pull just as Congress is. Yeah, I totally agree with everything that you're saying. I think, like, kind of touching on that, like, with the ideal Supreme Court justice, you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict what they're going to rule, you know, because you don't want them to be necessarily going along party lines. Like, if they ruled one way with this, you don't want them to necessarily rule another way with that. I think something else that you kind of touched on, um, to a degree, is just the narrow... The somewhat narrow Overton window of, you know, American politics and how, you know, our nation as a whole, what we consider to be centrist and what we consider to be right and left um, are actually, generally speaking, in like relative to the rest of the world, it's slightly more to the right um, than what the rest of the world considers to be like, you know, the general spectrum of, spectrum of politics. 
which I think is also just an interesting point because you kind of touched on that with like Merrick Garland. Um, but yeah, I think definitely just having people on the court who are really open to any decision, you know, it's hard to say whether, like, we're not in the minds of Supreme Court justices, so it's hard to say whether they go into cases with their minds made up already. But a lot of times it seems like they do because we, as a population, can kind of predict where they're going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that the Supreme Court should serve as a, I don't know if sanctuary is the right word, but it should serve as the part of our government that is not polarized. It, it should not be polarized. And if we nominate, or if a president nominates a Supreme Court justice solely on their position on Roe v. Wade, for instance, they're already going in with their mind made up, like um, you mentioned, Grace. And I think that we need to stop, or president should not be allowed, number one, to nominate someone based on their own personal beliefs. I think that that is heavily jaded, heavily biased. Um, and I just, pol our politics are highly polarized right now. And if every single section of our government is polarized, even the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be, in theory, a non-biased body, if, if there's no branch of our government that's safe from polarization, how are we going to get out of polarization? How are we how are we going to escape these deeply divided times? Um, that's also a question that I that I always go back to. This should be the sanctuary of free from polarization. And if we don't have that, what what is America now? What, what, where does that leave us? Um, yeah. yeah, I think to build on that, I think you know, just this, this polarization that has at least come, you know, it's obviously been here for a long time as you have FDR packing the courts in the 30s. But the recent, I know he backed, he backed off on this and has now decided that he's going to appoint a woman because, you know, that, that answers all the, that answers all the questions that we have. Uh, but before RBG passed away, when Trump was asked who he would think of, you know, because obviously there are two, and I do want to talk about later, there, there well, now there's one because RBG way but there were two democratic or liberal i'm putting that in quotes because obviously we hope that they're not in party loyalty on the supreme court but there are two liberal leaning court justices over the age of 80 obviously one passed away but stephen breyer is still very much alive and very much on the court and trump was asked you know if either of these pass away who would you consider putting on? And he put forth the names of Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz, who, even if they were, you know, obviously I have my opinions about both of those men, but uh, even if they were candidates for this kind of job, uh, they're senators, which is which means that their trade is literally to vote on their opinion, vote on their opinion of their constituents, not the constituents of the entire country. And even as a even as Supreme Court justice, it's not your constituents; it's just what you think the law is. And also, just you know, especially those two are very very opinionated senators. So that that just goes. I think that's just the ultimate example of why we need to fix the Supreme Court. Yeah, I agree with that. I think to kind of touch on that, the Tom Cotton one was especially distressing to me, 
just in terms of like you know when we talk about court impartiality and all this like he became somewhat of a household name earlier this year because of him writing an opinion article so like the fact that he was putting and he was putting out a not especially great opinion obviously it's my own opinion but he wrote an opinion article earlier this year um basically advocating for sending in military force to the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and that was when he kind of, you know, gained, in a sense, a larger platform. Obviously, he's a senator, so he has a pretty big platform, but when more people started to talk about him, and so to think that, like, the type of person that Trump is thinking of putting on the court is someone who we know because of the fact that he had such a polarizing opinion that he chose to publish and to kind of like make sort of big deal over uh that's a, a little bit concerning yeah i think that that what you mentioned sam about them both being senators and already having those biases so present is very concerning that that either one of them would enter this this portion of our government that should be unbiased. And I think that in terms of human rights, a lot of human rights issues um, are brought to the Supreme Court. And I think that as if the Supreme Court has a, has a majority of one party versus the other, like if it's not an, if it's not at all times an equal representation, you're not representing the whole country. Like Grace, you said you're only representing your constituents. If the majority of the Supreme Court is Republican or conservative, are they going to actively fight for for democratic ideals, or are they going to say, "Oh, we we want to push our agenda for the Republican Party, so we're going to decide based on what the party wants"? That that is something that I I, I just wholeheartedly believe that the court should always be balanced based on party it should always be an even um representation because if it's not you're not representing the entire country and we can go into how the two-party system is flawed in so many ways but as long as we have the two-party system we need to have equal representation of those parties on the court to ensure that every american is being represented and that it's not one party over the other and that goes like the that goes um the vice versa the opposite way too the court should not be majorly democrat either it should not be majorly liberal it should be equal it should be as equal as possible in all times mm -hmm. and that's the only way that i think that that we're gonna escape this polarization because as long as there is one party running the supreme court it's not it's not going to be representative of the american people which is why i think people are so concerned um, and with everything that's going to happen in the next couple months, because it affects the next 30 years, you know, it, it changes people's lives for a good portion of their lives. And to, to extend upon that, and I want to ask you both a question, because I, I brought up earlier with Stephen Breyer being 82 years old. Uh, let's go into hypothetical land for a second and say that Joe Biden wins the election. And that Joe Biden wins the election and Trump fails to put someone through for RBG. Now, 
he's that that means that now you have on January 20th a president that has the responsibility to fill one spot. And I hopefully in my in my ideal hypothetical future, I would hope that Stephen Breyer would step down if Biden were to be inaugurated, because then he could, you know, stop having this holdout mentality and we'd actually have more new blood and less of the fear of having to wait for, you know, when he eventually dies. And I think, so I would, I would hope that he would step down in the event of that. And then you have a president with two spots to fill. So this is, this is what we saw with Trump, where Trump filled two spots. And he filled two spots with, you know, two pretty conservative people. I think Gorsuch is, is more unbiased than Kavanaugh. And I think he's shown that in his voting so far. But he's still two Republican-identifying or conservative-identifying justices. Do you think Joe Biden or, you know, whoever, I mean, obviously it would be Joe Biden, but whoever would be the next Democratic president should appoint more Ginsburg-like justices that are more closer to the middle and more unbiased? Or should you, to balance the order, put, you know, the most liberal two people on the court? Like, what do you think they would do or what do you think they should do? I think that if you have two spots to fill, right? And mm. so, okay. So if Joe Biden has two spots to fill. Let's say we're working with that hypothetical situation. I think that he's going to get some pressure to fill the court with someone liberal. Okay. Right. If he's going to fill the court... If he's going to fill one position with someone who's liberal, he should also fill it with someone who's conservative to maintain that balance. That might be a very unpopular opinion, but if we are to truly maintain balance on the court, making sure that we're not... Because if he... If Joe Biden does fill those two positions, hypothetically, with two liberal candidates, how is that different? from what Trump did by filling it with too conservative. Like, I think that we need to, whenever there's two spots available, represent both parties. I think that is like an ideal or that should be an expectation or pick two moderate ones, which would be even better. So I think those are the only two realistic things. Two moderate judges, the core, as centrist as you can get, or if you're not going to do that, one liberal, one conservative, so that they balance each other out. What about one liberal, one moderate? Because I feel like, sorry if I'm stealing your thunder here, Grace. Uh, but um, what if, you know, because obviously if he were to do one liberal, one conservative, it would just be back to the 5-4. It would be back to the 6-3 conservative split. Oh, right. Uh, do you think that that might be something? One liberal, one moderate? Or... Absolutely. I think that that overall what we're looking for is two moderates. I think that that is obviously something that we should live up to. But if he gets pressure to put one person liberal, then he should have at the very least one moderate because you're right, it would it would return to the six um, three majority. So to even balance that out further, it'd have to be one liberal and one moderate so that it's not stacked again one party versus the other 
that's the goal to not have it stacked one party versus the other at least that's my interpretation of the goal yeah sorry if there was i don't know if you could hear but there were like crazy sirens um uh but yes i was thinking about that in terms of the current court because if joe biden were to come in and it was going to be briar and ginsburg seats that he would have to be filling then mm -hmm. And he were to fill it with a conservative and a liberal, respectively, um, then you would have that six-three split, which is probably what will happen if Trump fills the seat, which is looking increasingly more likely. Um, and I do, you know, when it comes to Joe Biden in particular, with him filling seats, um, he is relatively speaking a centrist, I suppose. When it comes to being a Democrat, he definitely is generally more right of the Democrats. Like, he's obviously within the Democratic Party, but tends to be more right among some Democrats. Um, so I think when he, if he were to fill the seats, he would probably, if it were in accordance with, you know, some of his beliefs, he would probably fill both of the seats with more moderate candidates. And I think this kind of goes back to something that we were discussing before, like in the ideal world, like both of the people who he would choose for the court in this situation, you know, both of them would be kind of like nonpartisan, sort of like totally ideologically independent from everything. But obviously everything has to be like sort of a conservative liberal split here. I think that, you know, if he were to have to fill both seats, the most responsible thing to do would be to put two liberals on just to keep the split as even as possible. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think I think that definitely makes sense. I think definitely, you know, four, four, one or four or four, five on either side, one being that, you know, that, that, you know, mythical pure moderate that really doesn't really exist. But I think four or five definitely is the closest thing we're going to get in the two-party system. Unfortunately, the court was created before the two-party system took shape, so they couldn't, uh, they couldn't really predict that. But unfortunately, you know, this country thinks that this country, I feel like the, the more I learn and the more I think about this country, it's just like, I feel like the, the slogan of this, of I've said this country like six times in the last 30 seconds, but our slogan should be, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just because our constant, as we said last week, our constitution is more than 200 years old and we've ousted a million, a bunch of other constitutions from other countries, but ours of course has to be this sacred document. And our Supreme court is a sacred chamber that isn't breached by any new rules. Uh, but like, I feel like that's just, you know, the two party system and our voting system as a whole also kind of condemns that to four or five being the best case scenario. Yeah, I think that no matter what happens, um, I'm, I'm still gonna keep true to that opinion that, that four or five is what America needs to function, to represent mm -hmm. all people and to make sure that democracy if we're going to have a two-party system, we need a court that represents a two-party system, mm -hmm. like plain and simple. So 
I just hope that I just hope that that can eventually happen. And I hope it's sooner rather than later for the sake of how divided our country is right now. Um, it'll only get worse if we have a majority court, one party or another. Um, like, like, again, it goes both ways. I mean, obviously I'm liberal, but I would also not be happy with a liberal majority in the Supreme Court because then I would realize that it's also not representative of the other side. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's true for sure. Um, yeah. It's also tough. One of the things that I've been considering with this is like, we tend to, you know, divide these judges in this binary of like liberal and conservative in a, you know, in accordance with our two party system. But what we consider liberal and conservative changes very quickly. Um, like what we consider to be like, you know, generally liberal or generally conservative views can change. So if we appoint a liberal judge now, come 30 years from now, they might still be on the court and they might be considered a conservative by then just by in sticking with their views the entire time. I just think that's also an interesting point with all of this. I think that kind of leads into one of the last things I wanted to say, which was life terms. How do you guys feel about that? <laughs> I think that life terms are really problematic. And the reason I say that is because if, say say what happens is all of these, you know, liberal judges start dying, which that process has already begun to happen and will continue to happen. But if that's the case and say those old older liberal judges are replaced with young, conservative judges that means that the court will have a conservative majority for a long time depending on the age of each person that fills that seat so i think what's also dangerous about this this shift that's about to happen is that people don't realize that this is going to affect the next 30 possibly 40 years of their lives and like thinking about us we're 20 right now We'll be like 60 by the time we see a potential shift in the Supreme Court again, if this indeed is, is the event that happens. And that is very terrifying. And I think that that's why it's so important that we vote in November. And that's why I'm also against life sentences because the, the Supreme Court should not have the ability to shape 40 years with no change because america changes a lot in five years alone the america we're in today is not the america we were in five years ago you know so how are we how are we supposed to have these supreme court justices who are the same for 40 years it's yeah yeah i think that's super important lifetime appointments it's one of those things where it's like i don't think that there's a great argument um, in favor of lifetime appointments, and I haven't really come across many people who are in favor of them, but it's just one of those things that we have as part of our interesting system of governance. Um, and yeah, I think what you touched on is really important that like we are seeing this shift now and then 
these are, you know, the Supreme Court is hugely impactful in a lot of ways. And, you know, if we get down to like 6-3 conservative majority, that is going to impact legislation for the next 20 or 30 years. Um, I think that's very, something very interesting con to consider because the makeup of our Congress can change. Obviously, the executive branch changes, um, and that will continue to shift with the times, but we'll be stuck with a Supreme Court that's kind of split in this majority, if that's the case. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that we've said a lot. We've said a lot in the last hour. Uh, does anybody else want to say anything else before we, uh, before we close it out? No, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good. I, I think we all just need to continue fighting and go to the polls on November 3rd and not, not take RBG's death as the end of, this is the end of an era of American history, but we need to keep fighting so that we can strive for what America is supposed to be. So. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. Go to the polls, ex exercise your political voice in any way that you can. You know, that's part of like the great American experiment. So, yeah. And I think, you know, just before before we say goodbye, I think it's, I just completely forgot about this. I remembered uh, back around episode five or six of our season one, uh, we were actually gonna do a Supreme Court episode. And it just, it just hit me. Uh, unfortunately, these circumstances, you know, kind of brought that back into the forefront. But I, I'm glad that we got to talk about this. But obviously, you know, rest in peace, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that now, since since when we made it, where we felt like you know it wasn't really an episode that was important at the time. Since then, it's now the you know the, the spotlight issue that we really should be talking about and should have been talking about then. But I think. It's sad that sometimes events like these bring about a conversation that needs to be had. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, thank you again, Grace, for coming. And that was great. I uh, think, you know, really fun discussion. And uh, hope you guys liked it too. So, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. And uh, hope you have a great week. Thank you.